Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Well, welcome and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I'm joined by the Honorary Associate Professor Wayne Reynolds, who currently resides in the School of Humanities and Languages at the Australian Defence Force Academy in the University of New South Wales. And Wayne has published on several nuclear themes, including a book, Australia's Bid for the Atomic Bomb. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It relates to the Menzies era and Wayne was a guest and participant at our recent dialogue on foreign policy, Australia's dilemmas then and now. So it's lovely to have an opportunity to continue the conversation with you, Wayne. Thank you, Georgina. Looking forward to it. Well, Wayne, now I don't know whether many people would know these days that Australia tried to get a nuclear weapon and develop an atomic bomb. Can you tell me when these plans all started? Well, the plans can be dated to World War II. Australia was very much part of the British defence program. A number of our key scientists in nuclear physics, like Mark Oliphant, had worked with the British from the very beginning on their nuclear program. In fact, Oliphant had been in Britain head of physics at the University of Birmingham since 1936. And the people that came up with the idea of a bomb were actually on his staff. So Oliphant was there at the beginning. Later, when the British set up a committee called the Maud Committee, Oliphant was a member of that committee. And the information was transmitted back to Australia in about 1941 in terms of the importance of finding as much uranium or thorium for a nuclear program as possible. So we were there at the inception. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And tell me, Wayne, at that time, Australia's defence industry was very much part of the British architecture, wasn't it? We didn't have our own independent defence industry as such, did we? No, we were uh, on a journey. Uh, World War II for Australia had really started uh, from the point of view of munitions production in 1938 when the war scare coming out of the Czechoslovakia crisis, that started to shake things loose. People like Essington Lewis at the BHP started talking about an aircraft industry. That got people interested in aluminium smelting, which of course is an important part of aircraft. So by 1939-40, the British were talking to us about the manufacture of uh, light bomber aircraft. The Beaufort bomber was the first Later on, it will go on during the war to be uh, four-engine bombers, the Lincolns and later jet aircraft. So World War II really marks the beginning, not only of uh, an Australian capacity to make aircraft, but also looking forward after the war to aluminium production for civil aircraft and beyond that, of course, the manufacturing capability to do all of these things. Yeah, and how linked in were we with the United States at that time? Because obviously they had their project to develop the atomic bomb and obviously it was successful in terms of the um, dropping of bombs on mm-hmm. Nagasaki mm-hmm. and Hiroshima at the end of the Second World War. The British were first and the British advised in 1940 
the Americans that they had done this work on nuclear energy. And the Americans had to be convinced. And one of the attempts used by the Churchill government, well, initially the Chamberlain government, to get the Americans to start looking seriously at British survival in fighting the Germans was to offer them the technological secrets, one of which was radar and a range of things, but one of which was on the work they had done on nuclear fission. Right. And that included elephants' work on cyclotrons and what have you, atom smashers. So the Americans were fascinated at this sort of work and they actually picked up some of the bits of work that Oliphant had done and took it much further. By 1941, the Americans were convinced that they should have a, a nuclear program. It wasn't clear to what extent the British would collaborate, but it was very clear that the Americans were now going to set up uh, what they called the Manhattan Program and the Manhattan Program was going to start marshalling the vast industrial resources of the United States. It would take until 1943 to wind out the bugs because there was a fair bit of suspicion. There were certain parts of the American program which were off limits to the British and the British had to confine themselves initially to the nuclear facilities in Canada. But by 1943, they were starting to work together on an integrated program to make the bomb. And this would have been no doubt discussed at leader level given the strategic urgency of the time in the middle of World War II. So you would have had um, President um, Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill talking about um, the Manhattan Project, for example, and the work of Mark Oliphant. Well, they didn't specifically talk about the work of Mark Oliphant, but they were talking about the collaboration between the British Commonwealth, which included New Zealanders, Australians, but at Quebec... The Canadians, the British and the Americans in 1943 agreed to come together and do a combined program. There were certain parts of it, for example, the plutonium production facilities at Hanford in Washington State. Uh, The British were not successful getting access to that. But the major facilities in the Tennessee Valley, which was a hydroelectric scheme in the Great Depression, which was also to host the nuclear facilities, the Australians had access to that. And also at Los Alamos, where, of course, the bomb was uh, assembled. So the Australians were very much part of the teams, as were the French. It was an Allied project, although after the war, the Americans then claimed it was an American project. But in '43, it's a combined effort. And tell me, Wayne, from the Australian perspective, why was there uh, such a need, did they think, for getting an atomic weapon? Was there a particular concern in Australia at the time? I mean, obviously the, the, the Japanese in the... Well, initially the they were very much aware that the British were doing this work. A number of them would have thought, as the Americans thought, the British were looking at a post-war bomb. That's why the Americans were a bit reluctant to work with the British because they thought, well, this is not going to happen in this war and we're going to end up with the British sort of stealing a march on us after the war. But I think you're right, Georgina. I think the fact that the Japanese had come so close. Mm. And it's no accident that uh, the first nuclear test that was conducted in Australia by the British in 1952 was done off the northwest coast of Australia. And it was done uh, in the Montebello Islands, which was really a way of saying if there's a naval invasion coming from that direction, we have this deterrent. And that's what an atom bomb would do to a fleet coming here. 
So there is a fascination. Of course, to what extent this is a possibility is not known. Mm. And it won't be known until 1945 when for a lot of people, certainly for the Australians who were not consulted, nor were the British, by the way, about the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, and the Australians actually complained the day after that there should have been a collaborative discussion before the bomb was dropped. But it's clear to everybody by August 1945 that this is an operational bomb, and that's when you get momentum. The Australians had been aware of the need to participate in the British program to prepare manufacturing and, well, I've I've mentioned uh, in in the book the work on irrigation programs, which had been the basis on which the Americans had built up the Manhattan program on top of the Tennessee Valley. We were very much aware of that and starting to look at the possibility of these TVA-type programs in Australia, and that led you to the idea of the snowy and the diversion of the snowy very much about electric power, hydroelectricity and ultimately, as with the Manhattan Program, the use of nuclear power on top of that electric facility. Now, with that, you have, by 1945, a real determination to look at not only the manufacturing capability but also questions about, well, will we have a bomb? Under what circumstances would we have a bomb? And and tell me, Wayne... Politically, what was going on in Australia in regards to this project? Was there bipartisanship on the work to, to try and attain an atomic weapon? Or? Well, in 1945, we simply didn't know where it was headed. Right. And there was a, a, a frenetic pace around, first of all, the meeting of the United Nations. There was a view that possibly the United Nations would take carriage of nuclear weapons. And uh, Dr. Evatt, who of course was foreign minister at the time, he went to the United States with uh, Mark Oliphant at the inaugural conference of the United Nations to explore the possibility that the United Nations would have carriage of uh, nuclear weapons. When it became clear that the United States was not prepared to surrender its own arsenal of nuclear weapons until a system of safeguards were put in place, then the Australian government, in, in its public diplomacy, started to call for an acceleration of uh, steps so that there wouldn't be a big gap between uh, the safeguard system to ensure that people didn't develop the bomb and the Americans surrendering their arsenal to the United Nations. Did you get a sense that in the World War II period, um, the early 40s, that the countries who were part of the development of the atomic bomb, did they realise how catastrophic it could be in terms of its impact on human I think the scientists did. Uh, I think certainly Oliphant did. Uh, uh, Bertram Goldschmidt, who was the leading French uh, scientist uh, in the Manhattan Program, he certainly understood what was going on there, but none of them knew until July 1945 when they detonated the first atomic uh, device at, uh, in, in, in Nevada. And it was about 20 kilotons. It was quite a blast. And then they thought, OK, we, we now know what we're dealing with. There was then a debate. People like Niels Bohr and others said, don't use this. And some of the scientists were, uh, Einstein himself, very reluctant to see this thing unleashed as, as a weapon and refused to participate. But uh, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, which was a bomb using uranium-235 by enrichment, the second bomb on Nagasaki used plutonium. So there was a cynicism about this. You're trying, okay, that's what a an enriched uranium bomb looks like, and here's what a plutonium bomb looks like, which is the more efficient in its yield. 
So there was almost this detachment in some ways about the way this was operating and a thought that, well, maybe dropping this on a city is not the way to go. On the other hand, the argument was, well, the Americans will lose a lot of people killed in the invasion of Japan, which I personally don't think was on on offer because the Japanese were pretty well a spent force well before that. But uh, certainly that was the idea that uh, you're going to save lives by doing this. Yeah, uh, well, having visited both Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and obviously there's um, various memorials in those cities mm. um, to to the events of August 1945, um, it is really breathtaking the catastrophe those bombs caused on mm. on those cities, and obviously huge loss of life, but um, enduring enduring effects also on on the land and um, environment um, and not least on the survivors as well. So, Wayne, we have uh, atomic weapons developed during the course of World War II. They're obviously deployed in in Japan by the United States. Was the the consideration of nuclear power parallel to that development or did that come after? What was sort of the, the thinking? So, you've You've obviously got two two tracks mm, here: mm. civil, civilian nuclear uses, and obviously the military uses. Well, the, the both went together. If if you wanted to have the the commercial applications, civilian applications, then of course it came with the bomb. Historically, the priority had been the bomb. Yeah, and the determination of the Australians by 1946, when they realised that the Americans, having tested two devices at uh, Bikini Atoll were going to go ahead and develop a, an arsenal of American-controlled nuclear weapons. And in 1946, uh, the Americans passed the McMahon Act, which uh, forbade the sharing of this technology with any other country. There was a limited collaboration with Canada, but certainly the British were cut out, which meant the Australians too had been cut out. The British then uh, thought, OK, we need to talk to the Commonwealth partners about how we might move on with a Commonwealth program for nuclear power. Now, Ben Chifley, uh, when Curtin had died, became Prime Minister, he announces uh, in 1946 three objectives. First of all, that Australia would uh, contribute uranium and thorium to the uh, supply of, of these raw materials to the manufacture of nuclear energy Secondly, that we needed to train people. And by this he meant continuing the wartime program of sending Australian scientists to the United Kingdom along with South Africa to work in teams to develop uh, uh, the facilities, ultimately for nuclear energy but also for nuclear weapons. And thirdly, Chifley wanted to have a reactor in Australia. Now, he doesn't say it in 1946, but it's pretty clear it's a dual-purpose facility. Yeah. It will have potential for civilian applications, but it will also have potential for military applications. So we find by 1947 that coming into the language is this proposition that we will have part of our integrated power system grid would be for Commonwealth defence. And they're talking about 400,000 kilowatts, which would be used on this, which is roughly what was used in the Manhattan program for the manufacture of nuclear weapons there. That was the, the drawing power of the hydroelectric system for uh, the input by the Manhattan program for the manufacture of uh, nuclear weapons there. So the, the, these sort of figures are pretty close. So it's pretty clear that we're going down that path. 
uh, we set up a defence science committee, and this is a big revolution in defence thinking after the war, this elevation of defence science to be a major arm of defence thinking. Uh, Leslie Martin, Professor Leslie Martin, becomes our chief defence scientist, and by 1948, uh, they are sitting around the table under the aegis of the Defence Committee talking about having an atomic subcommittee. And the first item on the agenda for the Atomic Subcommittee in 1948 is where would we build a major reactor, much bigger than the British could afford to build because of the limitation of the British Isles and what have you. This was an idea that Mark Oliphant had put to uh, Ben Chifley and he said, well, they can only go so far in Britain with these super hot reactors and... Here in Australia, we have a lot of uh, areas, something like the Manhattan Program, which the British couldn't duplicate. So by 1947-48, this is starting to come into the equation, that we will have the foundation, the hydroelectric and the energy foundation for a nuclear program. It's really interesting hearing you talk about the develop, you know, the early years of this um, nuclear program, how much we were part of the British project and not the American project. We, at our Australia's Dilemmas Then and Now dialogue, we obviously talked a lot about AUKUS and, and the alliance with the United States. It's mm. such a, you know, it's the centrepiece of our strategic outlook and we couldn't imagine doing things without the cooperation of the United States. But back then in the 40s, of course, we had a different strategic outlook. This was pre-ANZUS, of course, which was signed in in 1951. Before we go on to to this, um, uh, I'd like to talk about the Snowy Hydro and the importance of that, but tell me about this idea of the fourth empire that that Curtin was talking about, this sort of idea that Australia, you know, we're part of British power and we need to preserve British and... and Mm. Commonwealth power um, and, and the nuclear project is is actually underpinning that power and the continuation of it. Well, it's multifaceted. You're right. The atomic part is very important. And when the Americans banned collaboration with the British on the development of, uh, well, not just nuclear weapons but nuclear energy, there's this window from 1946 when they formalised that with the Atomic Energy Act until 1958, when effectively, well, they start doing this in 57. But uh, by 1958, uh, the Americans then suspend or amend that act and the British are then restored as full uh, partners. So you have a period from 46 until 58 when the British are alone. This is a very much a British Commonwealth program. South Africa, by the way, is also involved in a fairly significant way. So it's the southern dominions. Canada, of course, has been hived off by the United States because of the integration of their programs. But you're right, it starts in World War II itself. Uh, Curtin was never turning to the United States in 1941. Yeah. It was very clear to Curtin that the command arrangements uh, reached at Arcadia, it was called in 41. there was a division of effort in the Far East, uh, where there was going to be a defensive posture, the British in the Indian Ocean, the Americans in the Pacific Ocean, and the Australians uncomfortably in the middle. Mm. Uh, Anyway, he was calling for a plan, and it was pretty clear by 1944 that Curtin at the Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference said, well, we need the British flag in the Pacific. 
and there are a lot of threads coming together here. Civil aviation, sterling dollar diplomacy. We didn't like what the Americans looked as they were going to be doing with uh, what becomes Bretton Woods. Well, Lord Keynes had a very different view on the extent to which what becomes the, the World Bank and the IMF should be far better resourced and there should be much more multilateral control. Well, the Americans aren't going to have that. The Australians and the British talk about full employment. You need an international system where employment is uppermost. The Americans aren't interested in a full employment objective uh, enshrined in the United Nations and so forth. So you've already got tensions in yeah. terms of the, this basic financial outlook. And when the war ends and the Americans cancel dramatically Lend-Lease and then offer a loan to Britain, it virtually bankrupts the British who had put in everything into the war effort and have had no time to make the adjustment. And it's in that context that Chifley and later Menzies start to uh, divert trade away from the United States to build up the sterling area. So there is a real determination through the 1940s and into the 1950s that the British Commonwealth will emerge with a sterling area, Ottawa system intact, and that's the foundation on which you'll build aircraft, uh, uh, power stations, Air, uh, a whole range of facilities associated with rocketry, the Woomera rocket range and what have you. So there you have a, an integrated fourth empire type thing. They talk also about a third force. Between the Soviet Union and the United States, the British Commonwealth will emerge. The Commonwealth, not Britain. The British Commonwealth of Partnership will emerge as the third fourth. Yeah, it's really interesting because it's different from the the received narrative these days that uh, it was, you know, 1942, the fall of Singapore, we all mm. gave up on the British coming to our aid. We had to turn to America and obviously Curtin's speech. But in actual fact, that wasn't what was occurring at the time. There was obviously great disappointment about um, the British uh, withdrawing from, from Singapore and, and the Japanese encroaching so close to Australia and bombing Darwin. But we continued to keep the faith with the British, despite the contemporary narratives to the contrary. And I, I think that, you know, you've just explained how that really even went into the 50s after ANZUS was signed. So, Wayne, I thought we could talk a bit more about Snowy Hydro. So that was a, an idea first introduced by the Chifley government, I understand, in, in 47 the project began um, and then met the Menzies government really delivered it. But the idea behind the Snowy Hydro wasn't just hydroelectricity. It was to be a key, a key pillar of the nuclear power program, wasn't it? Well, Nelson Lemon, when he moved the bill for the Snowy Mountain Scheme formally in 1949, made it very clear to Parliament that this is the program that will take us into the atomic age. Yeah. And he draws parallels between the Snowy Scheme, and they didn't call it the Snowy Hydro Scheme, they called it the Snowy Scheme. Yeah. But he made it very clear that there were parallels between the Tennessee Valley Authority and the Snowy Scheme. And he said they're roughly the same size in terms of their power and what have you. So by 1951, you've got Menzies and others readily identifying with the electrification of the uh, Australian uh, East Coast and they were going to have this dispersal of industry, they were going to integrate the, the snowy system with the overall grid. So there was very much a talk about having a major uh, program of electric power. And in that context, the possibility, which is considered by Cabinet in 1952, of a dual-purpose reactor. Yeah. Now... 
The problem we have is that the discussions about reactor sightings, which we know went to the Atomic Subcommittee in 1948, and that was discussed, all of those files have been withheld. All these years later, we still don't have one document from the Atomic Subcommittee. We do know that reactor sightings were a key part of that. We also know in 2000, when we finally got a bit of an idea of where these reactors would be built, it was a network of reactors in the southern highlands, in Victoria and the southern Alps in Australia, and ultimately to, down to Jarvis Bay, where, of course, they made a, a serious attempt to start the reactors. And the centrepiece of a, a lot of this was at uh, Jindabyne, where Turnbull much later talks about uh, having Snowy 2.0, well, Snowy 1.0 uh, in 1964 was very much about having a reactor, a proposal put up by the Atomic Energy Commission for pumped hydro, and therein you had a much more efficient and integrated system of nuclear and hydroelectric power. And and then tell me, we, we needed the people to work on the development of these projects, and one of the... the key legacies of the Menzies era is, of course, the expansion of tertiary education in Australia. He was mm. really committed to having an educated population <clears throat> and, and the sciences were, were part of that. Was the thinking that we needed to expand tertiary education, um, not just to have a, a cultivated, enriched society, but because we had programs like the nuclear program that needed people with the smarts and technical know-how? Yes, well, Leslie Martin was actually involved in a lot of that uh, drive for science education. And it, it's really a movement that starts in earnest in 1955 when James Killian advises Eisenhower that the Russians are churning out physicists and uh, engineers at such a scale mm. that if we don't have a, a mass mobilisation response in our education resources, we're going to lose this. Now, this is significant because it's two years before people start thinking, oh, the Russians have got a rocket and they can put up Sputnik and what have you. Well, it's very clear to the Americans that there is a major race for scientific manpower. And they're talking about millions of people going through the Russian system being trained in this way. They had, that, was that true or was that just a supposition? No, no, that's absolutely true. Yeah. The Killian Report mm. looked at uh, something like one and a half million people then in Russian higher education or technical colleges doing some aspect of that. So there was this sense that we are losing uh, ground in the development of our overall science education resources. The British themselves uh, in the 1940s had the Barlow Committee Report and it was looking at uh, trained scientific manpower, to use the term then, and they needed to do something with technical education. And there was a major concern in Britain that a lot of their scientific brains were tied up in the work of the bomb or nuclear power and not enough released to the universities to be training up the next generation of students who would do science. So the British themselves were looking at a revolution in the Department of Education and Science. Now, that became a very much... A, a, a model that we picked up. It's no accident, for example, that a lot of our people working on uh, the nuclear questions, like Baxter, were in universities. Mm. So you've got uh, Baxter, who becomes synonymous with the bomb program in the Atomic Energy Commission at the University of New South Wales. Harry Messel, who calls for uh, reactors in the Snowy Mountains in the mid-50s, 
he's there as well. And then you've got, uh, as I said, uh, South Australia, Victoria, you've got all of these universities working on nuclear physics. And at the top of the tree, Oliphant at the ANU, and very much aware from 1946 on of the importance of the ANU in developing physics, nuclear physics, and by 1951, one of the top experts in the British uh, Commonwealth on nuclear weapons, Ernest Titterton, goes to the ANU and heads up the Department of Nuclear Physics, and it's Titterton who starts calling also for the Snowy Scheme to to marry with hydroelectricity in the 1950s. By the 1960s, just to finish that off, you have a determination that science education, again following what's happening in America, where there is a major push by the federal government to fund science education in the United States, the Menzies government introduces that science education, libraries and textbooks, not so much as many people thought about an ideological commitment to uh, state aid for non-government schools. He wanted everybody in whatever school to have access to science education. It's quite incredible the amount of investment and the urgency around um, educating young people in Australia in the what we call STEM these days. Mm. And you forget, I think, that strategic competition that was pushing research into obviously nuclear physics, but but also the space industry as well. Mm. You mm. had the space race back then and the, the race into space and the race to the moon. And I mean, these were expressions of, of national power and prestige beyond the, the usefulness of these developments to the prosperity and health and happiness of mankind this was about national pride mm. and uh, and power the power dynamics of the cold war so all of this no doubt accelerated the development of knowledge in these fields because of the of the strategic environment at the time yes one of the things i find dispiriting about the recent nasa launches of rockets here is the difference between what we're doing now with these nano-satellites and the massive commitment we made to rocketry in the 1940s and 1950s and the equivalent of billions of dollars by the Australian government and the British into the rocket range at uh, Woomera. And this was going to be really built around inter-range, uh, intermediate-range ballistic missiles. It was called Blue Streak. But from 1946 on, the British were determined, looking at the experience of the Germans in World War II, to take seriously a move into rocketry. Well, the Australians were absolutely the centrepiece of doing that. Unfortunately, as part of the arrangement with the United States in 1958, the Americans moved pretty quickly to offer alternative rockets to Britain. They're called Thor, and uh, these Thor rockets uh, bring with them a sting in the tail, which is to cancel the so-called Blue Streak missile at Woomera, which is cancelled in 1960. And it's really after that that our commitment to a major rocketry program is wound up. And we've been gun-shy about rockets ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wayne, I wanted to move on to the 50s. Um, So we're in the middle of the Cold War and... Menzies has tried to ban the Communist Party, is real concern about KGB activity in Australia. And then we have the Petrov affair in, 50, in 54. 
What does that do to Australia's reputation, that period where there is real concern about the domestic security situation in Australia? How are we able to keep secrets? Um, is our Department of External Affairs, Department of Defence, ministers' offices, um, opposition leaders' offices, you know, are they infiltrated with KGB agents and operatives? What happens to Australia's reputation, not just with the United States, but also with, with the British during that time? Well, from 1948 until 1954, that issue is absolutely central because in 1948 the Americans ban uh, intelligence sharing with Australia, which is interesting because they weren't collaborating with us on anything. The ban really hit the British and they were making it very clear that if the British passed on any information to the Australians, which had also involved collaboration with the United States which, of course, in the context of the Manhattan Program, was a lot of things. They were virtually saying, well, we don't want the British sharing information with the Australians. The British were extremely uncomfortable with that proposition. Nevertheless, the United States put on the ban, and for the next two years, the British struggled with trying to convince the United States that the Australians were necessary as a key Commonwealth partner in defence. Now, it's interesting that they suggested that Department of External Affairs were involved, members of the External Affairs Department were not involved in defence science. They had no access to the new weapons and equipment development committee, the atomic subcommittee or anything else, and will not have access to any of these things until the late 1950s. So all through this period, the major concern of the Americans, and it's a big concern in America, a lot of people are purged in American government because of concerns about secrecy and what have you. This is the McCarthy period, and there were hundreds of thousands of Americans who were being security vetted, many of them losing their jobs. A major debate about can we trust Lilienthal, who'd been the head of the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority and went on to head up the Atomic Energy Commission. Can we trust him with a bomb? And this idea of having an Atomic Energy Commission, we think the military should have custody of the bomb. So the Americans are desperate to ensure that this doesn't happen, but un under no circumstances should the British Commonwealth be seen as an atomic block. So there are major attempts to stop the British going ahead uh, full steam with a reactor program. This is called the modus vivendi, uh, this, this uh, step in 1948, when the British say, all right, we'll back off a bit, but we need to think again about the extent to which you're going to share information. Now, the Americans don't do much, but there's a nibble, so the British start to have discussions with the Americans about how they might move things. The big step is 1954, when the Americans, in the wake of what's going on in Vietnam, the, the, the loss of Dien Bien Phu, the need to rethink the challenge of communism, the Americans think, well, we might amend the Atomic Energy Act to take account of NATO. Now, if we can get the Europeans to share in a nuclear program including the use of nuclear weapons shared with NATO, maybe we can loosen the Atomic Energy Act. Menzies is aware of that. And the British make it very clear that, look, if we're going to get a breakthrough here, this is not a good time for security issues to be played up. Mm. And, of course, at precisely this time, the Petrov affair. Yeah. Now, since we've got our own history on the Petrov affair. But from the British point of view, they cautioned Menzies under no circumstances to stir this up. We need the Americans to be on side. Now, as it turns out, 
whatever else you think about the Petrov affair, it turns out that the Americans are not convinced that the Australians are ready for the same sort of status as NATO. Now, the British communicate that back, as do the Americans to the Australians, saying, well, down the track, uh, we will look at the Australian role. But for now, this is a NATO program. So, and it's a version of World War II. Beat Hitler first, the Atlantic powers first, the special relationship with the British. The British, on the other hand, from 1954 to 1957, are absolutely dependent on Australia now for testing because their testing had started in 52. By 54, we're starting to move to Totem in South Australia and to a permanent test facility at Maralinga. And presumably they're reliant on us for uranium and, and other minerals that are Absolutely. Used in it's that. not only yeah. uranium. The British are now saying, well, we need to advance this mm. so that you're going to build uh, an experimental facility, which becomes Lucas Heights, which mm. is modelled on the Harwell site that... that uh, Oliphant had been instrumental in setting up as well. We need an experimental reactor which will prepare us for a full reactor program. The British press ahead with that. So there's a, an acceleration of the atomic relationship with the British and the Americans are holding back but also very much aware that the British are going to get closer and closer to developing their own nuclear weapons, thermonuclear weapons and rockets. So the Americans are slowly starting to come around. The question then is, well, are you going to take the Australians with you? Mm, indeed. Uh, and, and so then does Australia become the most ambitious of all the Commonwealth dominions in terms of its nuclear ambition? South Africa has exactly the same ambition. And parallel to Australia, when the Americans and the British agree, we go two different ways. South Africa says what they call Operation Church Tower, they, they are going to develop their own nuclear weapons. The Australians say no. Menzies says, well, we don't need them yet, but we do need to keep the research going. We need to know how to do this, but we need to do it probably with the British. So we need to look at the possibility, as in NATO, that they will share the technology. And in, in NATO, it's the parallel is Euratom, having a European Atomic Energy Commission. Well, maybe we can have something like that. But we also need to know that in a war that we have access to what they call non-strategic nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons. So one of the great discussions in Australia all through the Menzies era is, well, what is Australia's role, as with NATO, in acquiring these weapons in the event that we end up in a hot war. Yeah, and that really was a live debate until, um, you know, well after the Menzies era, wasn't it? It's, um, it, it, it's I think, obviously the, the issue of, of nuclear weapons, of nuclear power in Australia is a hugely vexed one and um, there are, there are um, uh, issues around the testing sites in Australia and the British using Australia as a testing ground. But we forget, I think, how long that debate played out until it was, you know, pushed to the side. Well, the, the debate's still here. Well, true. Yeah. The, the, uh, well, we're waiting to see the nuclear posture review from Biden. Mm. But the Americans have a posture review in the same way they have a quadrennial defence review. Well, we're waiting to see whether or not they are going to continue this idea that NATO has access to non-strategic nuclear weapons. Now, that's, well, there's, 
There was a B-61 nuclear device which fitted onto the Joint Strike Fighter. In the European context, the Joint Strike Fighter is a delivery system potentially for nuclear weapons. Now, that's openly discussed in the Nuclear Posture Review. Now, this idea that Europe would have the capacity to deliver non-strategic weapons has been there from the beginning of NATO. It has never stopped. The question from the Australian perspective is, well, under what circumstances would we be treated as another member of NATO? And what you've got today is a discussion of Australia's relationship with NATO. We have wanted a relationship with NATO since the beginning of the Menzies era in the 1950s. But the... Our, our sort of nuclear ambitions really ended, at least the first chapter, in 1971 with Gorton, didn't they? No. Oh, okay. No, the, in, uh, Gorton was certainly very keen to uh, uh, develop the reactor. It's a myth that McMahon said, oh, well, that's it, we're going to stop. They deferred the reactor. McMahon sent uh, Swartz, Reginald Swartz, Minister for Supply to the United States to have a discussion about the possibility of a major reactor facility in Australia and the Americans were not interested. Also interested in talking to the French and to the British. Now, Gorton himself had a preference for the British and the Atomic Energy Commission actually looked to the British to provide the reactor at Jarvis Bay. They won the tender. Now, the question then was, well, what's going to happen given that the Americans don't want to do this? We can't just go ahead with the reactor. The British themselves are a bit cautious, but the British are willing us on. Urenko, the British-led enrichment consortium, had won the tender. If we were going to have a nuclear industry, the British were going to be there, and if we're going to have other reactors, the British were going to be producing them. So there's a debate in the Foreign Office about how far do we push the non-proliferation thing in our relation to the United States, but how far do we encourage the Australians to look at a nuclear future? And at that point, there's a separation between the reactor at Jarvis Bay and the proposition that Australia may develop an enrichment capability. So if we don't have the reactor, maybe we need to look at the possibility that we have the capacity to enrich uranium, we can sell the fuel and maybe reprocess the fuel and then at some point we will have a reactor. But we need to have a facility to reprocess, which is what the French started to do for us, and also to enrich, which Urenko was going to do for us. The British encouraged us with that. Now, that goes from McMahon into the Whitlam era. And Rex Connor, he wanted a loan. What was it for? Largely for enrichment. And the idea, maybe at Spencer's Gulf, which... Tom Playford, all those years ago in South Australia, had been talking about the need for nuclear facilities in South Australia, given the location. Well, Connor was interested in having that. But there was also the proposition that the enrichment industry itself would lay the foundation for the technology to then have nuclear reactors. Now, that goes... Now, we know about the, the problem for the loan affair, but Fraser carries on with the same discussions, except unlike Whitlam... He's going to try to get companies on side like BHP and CSR and others, have a consortium, but very concerned that we would also have an enrichment capability. Now, we don't know because the files are classified on the discussions between Jimmy Carter and uh, Fraser in 1978 and 1979 when we entered an agreement with the United States. We do know that the United States 
were aware that Fraser wanted to have a major nuclear capability, which included reactors and reprocessing and enrichment. We also know, I've been to the Carter Library, I've had a look at the briefing files that Carter got, and they said, look, we need to do what, sort of what the British are doing. We need to encourage them to think about this as a long-term possibility, but for now we need their uranium, mm. and particularly the Americans, because they didn't want anyone enriching. They didn't want anyone to be reprocessing. They wanted a once-through system. So this is, and they put the label of non-proliferation on top of that. Well, the Europeans didn't buy that. The British, Uranco, didn't buy that. The French, with their own consortium called Eurodiff, they didn't buy that. The Japanese didn't buy that. But the Americans were determined. And we signed up with the United States to supply them with lowly processed uranium in yellow cake form, send that to the United States, and they would then process it there and send it off to whoever. And that was the nuclear fuel cycle that we developed. Now, after that, the question mark was, well are we going to be capable of maybe with the Europeans? And Fraser is very interested down to 1983 in seeing whether or not we can have a safeguards agreement with Euratom and also with France, possibly Germany and certainly Britain. Can we have a nuclear trade in Europe where we are a partner and they will have a feasibility study as to whether or not we can have facilities here? Now, Euranco agrees to have that feasibility study, as did the French. With the Hawke government, there's an end to it. The Atomic Energy Commission is abolished, and as a couple of, uh, of our diplomats said at the time, American pressure was we need the Australians to, to stay with the, the fuel cycle we have. We really don't need the Australians at this stage to be moving into the enrichment and reprocessing game. So ultimately it's the Americans who put paid to Australia's nuclear energy prospects. Yes. It's a perennial debate and, of course, it's revisited now post-election, new government, opposition leader potentially thinking about whether we at least have one political party championing um, nuclear power. Of course, there's a lot more um, motivation to do this given the climate change mm. issues we're facing and nuclear energy being a, um, a carbon a carbon emission-free process. There must have been a sense, given our energy resources uh, of coal and gas that, and, of course, hydro, that, that it wasn't an imperative for us like other countries, for example, you know, the British, um, some of the European nations, the Japanese, where they, you know, they, didn't, they weren't blessed with the natural resources that we, that we are to, to, pro to produce energy and therefore, you know, really... The imperative was there to develop nuclear energy. Well, the Australians have been riding coal from the 1950s. It was actually the Americans that got us into the thermal coal business with selling to, to Asia. And then, of course, natural gas by the 1980s. But essentially, while we talk about these as Australian developments, but they were largely foreign-owned. And the development of natural gas in Western Australia, for example, as we're now reminded, was very much about exports, not supplying the East Coast, and almost entirely foreign-owned. So a lot of the profits were going offshore. The investments came in, but so were the dividends going out. So, yes, we had those things, and nuclear power was seen as not necessary, but there, were, there was always interest in nuclear technology, certainly propulsion. We were working on nuclear propulsion from 1965 at the Atomic Energy Commission. 
One of our first debates with the United States in 1965 when they were talking about a, an agreement, a safeguards agreement with Australia, was that the Australians said, well, we are going to have, their phrase was, the non-explosive military uses of nuclear power. Now, that's propulsion. And the Americans said, well, we're not going to sign up to that. And we said, well, what's wrong? Because there's nothing wrong with nuclear propulsion. We maintain that line right through. It is not illegal to have propulsion. So the Navy was aware of that. The Navy League in the 1980s was aware of that. Why we went with conventional submarines in the 1980s is a very interesting question for another day, possibly. But certainly by the time of uh, the Howard government, when uh, George Bush talked about a global nuclear energy partnership, it seemed to open a window to revisit Australia's role that it had in the Fraser period. Now, that didn't go anywhere. But to come back to the proposition that you raised at the beginning, climate change, the fact that nuclear power along with hydroelectricity are the two major outcomes of that 1980s period in terms of renewable energy. It's also a major diplomatic area in terms of having influence around the world if you're going to reprocess, if you're going to have as few facilities as possible in safe places with good safeguards, then you're ticking the climate change box, you're also ticking the diplomatic box, the non-proliferation box. So I think from all of those points of view, and of course in Australian manufacturing, which has been a real casualty of the last 40 years, yeah. this is something where an Atomic Energy Commission type structure is going to enhance that, but I think it's going to tick a lot more boxes than simply, well, Bowen has recently said, we'll bring on the debate about nuclear power. This is not just about the cost of... Uh, having a power station, which is nuclear, and feeding that into the domestic market. This is about enrichment. It's about reprocessing. It's about relations and partnerships in the Middle East where they desperately need this sort of arrangement. Iran and others who are currently reprocessing through and enriching through Russia. Well, obviously, the supply chains associated with that, Egypt and others, Saudi Arabia, are interested in the end of the nuclear fuel cycle. Have we got a role to play in that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, look... Um Wayne, you've obviously left us with a lot more to talk about for another day, but thank you so much. And uh, it's, I don't think there's been a better time to have this discussion given the resurgence of interest in the nuclear debate and it's good to know where it all started and the really significant journey that Australia's been on across the decades um, and how that has been so influenced by US and British thinking and, and action. So thank you very much, Wayne Reynolds. Thank you, Georgia. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.